Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, radio has been called theater of the mind. So let's tell a story with sound effects. <laughs> Wow, it's like I was in the story. Almost makes me forget this was supposed to be about saving big with Progressive. <laughs> Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. I can remember growing up and movies being a very central part of my childhood. And it continues to be a large part of my adulthood. There's something about movies or films, cinema, the excitement, the thrill, the intelligence. It just always gets me. And uh, I am not ashamed to admit that I've watched a megaton of movies and film in my lifetime. And one of the things I really enjoy at this point, especially with this podcast, is getting to talk to filmmakers, going behind the scenes, pulling that curtain open and seeing about the mechanics of what it's like to make a movie, the feelings, the production, everything leading up to releasing the movie, just what happens, you know, how you select things, all those things, really fun to learn about. Um, today on Dr. D's Social Network, we have Justin McAleese, filmmaker, does everything from commercials to feature films, and we have a great conversation just discussing everything I explained about behind the scenes and how he views movies as someone who's in the profession. I think it's really interesting. And uh, before we get into the conversation, uh, we're going to check out the trailer for Justin's movie, Brick Madness, and then a little bit of music and then in the conversation. And also looking forward to his new feature, which will be out in March, called Better, uh, about diabetes. So without further ado, enjoy the music, the trailer, and the conversation. Whoa, whoa, are you guys, you guys are making a documentary about bricks, yeah? Let the celebration begin. This is awesome. My name is Cedric Donovan. I'm here in Fresno, California, making a documentary about the bricks world. As we crown a new bricks national champion. So do you have any heavy favorites in this competition? <laughs> heavy favorites. Ricky Six. I've been hearing an awful lot about this Ricky character. Is um, Who is he? Who's Ricky? You and your crew are formally invited to celebrate the last days of the legend, Ricky Six, and the dawn of Ricky Seven. A dude that changes his game every time. Come on. I already told you I'm gonna be Ricky 50, and then I'll stop. He knows how to play the crowd, he knows how to work the judges, he knows the system. When you're the best at something, am I just supposed to walk around and pretend like anyone can touch what I do? Come on, that's ridiculous. That's what Ricky looks like. That's amazing. He's okay. stupid. Ricky's trying to tromp on your territory, right? Seems like kind of a turd. Is that with a O or an A? Oh, it's an A. Yeah, I already put an O, oh. so. Ricky Six is not Max Grand. Max Grand, really? 
We're still talking about this guy. He was the godfather of bricks before there was even a family tree. He's a legend. Max freaking grand, oh my gosh, like Lord of Bricks. Win from 98, win from 99. The dude had to cheat last time just to level the playing field. When my hero gets accused of something like that, that killed me. Okay, I'm not talking about the incident. You guys don't know what you're talking about, do you? Do you? Yeah, this is your first time. What do you know? I'm Seth Paxson. Seth Paxson! Up and comer, came out of nowhere. I mean, that's really it. Nobody knows Seth. You're in charge of like a school program, right? What's your name, little dude? Nicholas Grandominion. Nicholas Grand. Wait. You said that again? One more. This is Max Grand's little nephew, Nicholas. I'm hoping that he's gonna bring it. Okay, let's start again. Okay, let's start again. Compliments from the gentleman in the corner. I gotta win. I gotta win. I gotta be him. That showdown right there means everything. 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 When I grow up, I'm gonna be in the brick tournament. I'm gonna be just like you. That's inconceivable. making and movies and uh, obviously I'm not a professional, but I just enjoy the process of anything. And so I'd love to hear about your motivation for getting into all things film. Yeah, I, you know, I think it was a gradual process of finding out what I wanted to do and finding out maybe even more importantly, what I didn't want to do. I was a Mm. mechanical engineering student for about a year and a half at Fresno State where I went to school. And, you know, I always thought, I think throughout most of my life, that being some sort of an engineer or an architect or something in the stems, that sort of idea would really be what I liked. And then I, I sort of realized it wasn't maybe as creative as I wanted day to day. And I might not have been hanging out with the people that I felt like spending time with all the time, at least like according to who I was hanging out in classes with. They just yeah. weren't inspiring me in the same sort of way that I think other creatives were. And yeah, gradually I came to the idea that you know, I'd rather try to make movies and try to make a go of it and see what I could do and that that would be more fun. So that's really what I, I think I gravitated toward. More fun. Sounds like more fun. Yeah. <laughs> On that. Yeah. So how did you start dabbling into it? What was the process of like, where did you start once you got into it? You know? Yeah. You're always trying to find more experience. Filmmaking is definitely a thing to where you don't know what you don't know until you realize you don't know it. And Mm. often you have to find that sort of thing out from other people who are already way above you. You know, I I think there's a lot of things you can read a manual about. 
a lot of jobs, a lot of types of um, careers that like there's just a lot of hard, um, what would you say, information that only really works one way. I would think being a doctor, I mean, a lot of the things you learn are mm-hmm. there's a million fundamentals and I don't think there's a million fundamentals in in um, filmmaking. I think there's some at the bottom, but then you need to learn a lot of the rest of it through your own experience. And so just being around, being on set, working on other people's productions, trying to make stuff my, myself and seeing what happens and what doesn't work. I mean, that's, you know, the, uh, a famous photographer once said the first 10,000 pictures were my worst. And I think that's, that's sort of a wise thing. You got to work through all that stuff that doesn't work for you. That's an interesting uh, way of looking at it. So when you were doing it, what surprised you about being in the film industry? I think anytime you go into something, you're a little more optimistic than maybe is um, rational later, or at least I am. Mm. I mean, most optimists probably are that way. And so you think that it might be easier than what it is or that the barriers to entry won't be quite as high. Or that if people could just see what you could do, then they would believe you and they would give you money and they would tell you to make more. And <laughs> I think the the harsh realization oftentimes is that, A, maybe you're not as good as what at what you thought you were, or you were good at what you thought you were, but there were like 50 other things you didn't even realize you had to also be good at simultaneously. And you needed to up your game in all those other factors. So I think that was like a lot of what, sort of came down the pike when I when I started I was like oh this is gonna be easy I'm gonna do this and make a million dollars and be famous blah 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 <laughs> and then pretty quickly you're like oh man there's so many reasons that's not gonna be true mm-hmm. yeah that's it's kind of interesting the perspective you have when you're outside of it and then you start getting into it and where that goes now was there anything that was as you expected it to be as you started doing it I would say that still the nuts and bolts of filmmaking have always been there and haven't changed that much. I mean, you come up with an idea, you write a script, you get some friends involved, you get a location, a some actors and some props and wardrobe and all that, and you do it and you cut it and you make it and you show people. I mean, that's never changed. That's never going to change, really, if you're doing that sort of narrative work. Um, and if you're making a commercial, you got to go talk to a client. You got to figure out what they want, figure out why they want it, what you can bring to the table, how you can make it different execute on that idea, whatever plan you guys come up with, and then deliver a final product, edit it, switch it up five times, and then deliver it again. You know, So I, I think those things carry with us no matter what we do. Now, I saw that you're doing, speaking of commercials and stuff, so you've done like a wide array of different, sounds like media or film. Is there one particular format that you're really into or you just like the process of all of them? I definitely like the di- different processes for different reasons. So being a director of photography, which is what I often do, probably more than actual directing, is great because I can take something else from someone else's mind and, and you know maximize it. I can fine-tune an idea that already exists, which a lot of times is easier than coming up with an idea from nothing. And there's a little more uncertainty when you come up with something from nothing if it's good or not, if you can execute it, if other people should be doing it. But when you're a director of photography and you're on set, the the money, the idea, the time, the effort, the the plan is already basically there or else you've contributed to it. And so you're just, it's just a matter of executing. And it's not quite so scary when you're a director occasionally you're on set and you just have these like 
very uh, existential moments of like, why is anyone wasting time on this thing? This was my idea. I don't even <laughs> like we should all go home. Sometimes you feel that way. And that's um, a lot more debilitating p- potentially than being a DP where they're like, well, someone hired me to do this. I'm going to do the best I can. And that's all I can offer at this moment. And so everyone will probably be happy at the end of the day if I do a decent job. Hmm. It's interesting. I wonder for you, how does watching a commercial or a movie or anything like that, how is that different for you being in that business versus say the casual uh, watcher of these things? Yeah. I would say, you know, there's a couple double-edged swords there. One of them is people are like, oh, you probably can't enjoy anything because you always see all the problems or whatever. And I don't think that's fair. I think that if you talk to your average, like, musician, I think they probably have have the potential to enjoy music even more. Like, the music that they love, they love on a whole another level of transcendence that other people who don't understand music might not be able to in the same sort of way. So I think that's a powerful... Um, ability to bring to the table when you do understand a medium. And uh, conversely, I think that I can see the issues or sort of sort of see when people are being lazy, when the creators, the content creators are being lazy or being condescending or not valuing their audience or being insulting in the, the way that they approach something because they think I'm stupid. So that's the other issue too, that I have a lot with some of, you know, like sort of major Hollywood directors that make a lot of money and make a lot of films. I just feel like they're very insulting to, to the movie going public in general. Explain that. I want to hear more about that, like insulting and on a deeper level, what does that mean? Yeah, a, a few things. So it could be even how they set up a shot. So in my opinion, Michael Bay sets up shots in a way to where he is trying to obfuscate most of the needed information in the scene because there's not that much information to get across in the scope of a two hour and 45 minute movie. He doesn't actually have that much storytelling to do. So a lot of it is just trying. It's all flashy, shiny stuff, just, you know, flying in the wind just to get your attention, but there's no real value. There's no real meaning there to most of it. And so it's the illusion of meaning or the illusion of usefulness within storytelling. But he knows that, I know that a lot of people don't know that because they sort of get hoodwinked into it. So I, I think that's very insulting to um, to sort of a film educated uh, viewer. I would say that from the Michael Bay perspective too, he reuses his old footage. I mean, that's a known fact. He takes mm. shots from other movies. He took took a shot from the rock or whatever it was. I forget from bad boys. I think he he took multiple shots from bad boys and put them in transformers movies. The exact same footage. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Took the exact same footage, put new robots or cars or whatever the hell you want to talk about on top of that footage and fed us the same exact stuff. So not only is that an indictment of like how he approaches his audience and how he approaches filmmaking, that it's just a rinse and repeat sort of deal for him, but that, how he approaches like storytelling and the Genesis and the, what would you say? Um, how sacred that ability is to be able to do that with viewers out there who want to see your stuff. And so I, I just think that's highly insulting, you know, when it comes down to it, I don't know that there's a better word to describe that. Yeah. And he's just one of my least favorite filmmakers in a variety yeah. of ways. He's good at what he's at. He's good <laughs> at what he's good at. And I think he gets 
more credit as if that is a holistic thing to be good at. And I don't believe that mm. that's true. Yeah. So is there a place for that type of movie making you think for the audience or do you think the audience craves other things? I think yes and no. The audience craves what they've been given. I mean, mm. audiences in general don't, they're very fickle, obviously. And they, they want what they've already gotten, but only slightly different. And they don't necessarily have their ability to, what do you want to say? To ask for something different when they would want to. I, I personally believe that most people are probably not great. Maybe the majority. It's, it's hard to say because this is sort of a, just an idea statement, a, a hypothetical. Yeah. But I don't think that people are usually good at looking out for their own best self-interest. I think they're like sort of poor at it in most cases. Um, and I would say that watching inferior films, when you could be watching like basically what you're getting out of that film, you could be getting from a different place and getting something else and not being insulted. So I think there's something there that a lot of people ask for the same stuff over and over again and then get mm. disappointed. So, you know, yeah. and, and not, not to harp specifically on Michael Bay, it's, it's whatever. There's other filmmakers like this. Sure. But, um, you know, so many people that I knew basically came out of, let's say, Transformers 4 or something. And I'm like, why did you go see that movie? And they're like, well, I don't know. I just thought I should because I saw the rest. And I'm like, did you like it? And they're like, no, it's terrible. I was like, you knew it was going to be terrible. This was a waste of your time and money. And you knew that going in. Why did you do it? I don't know. Because, you know, and it's just an I don't know cuz sort of situation. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who pursue mood, uh, not pursue, people who have a slot to fill in their lives that media will fill, like media in the most generic way possible would are okay having whatever the people at the top are telling them to want they're they're just fine with wanting that and i think that's a you know that's an ignorance is bliss sort of situation but i don't think it is blissful i think they're only convincing themselves it is blissful because it is easier not to have to think about it and i think i'm putting way more thought into all this than most of them are <laughs> i think you're putting the thought in that i personally put in Okay. Uh, to movie uh, watching, on and um, I'll give you a good example from maybe my point of view, which um, it sounds similar to yours, but um, I look at it like let's say a, a producer director like a Ridley Scott, okay. and I really like the early Alien films, you know, Alien, Aliens, the whole thing. Sure. And then it just started getting really bad. Yeah. I thought just really terrible. And and I really wanted to be like into like Prometheus and Covenant. And I thought, well, there's a real mythology here that can be explored with engineers and things and like a really good backstory. And I was like, why was this skipped over? Like, yeah. I want like this could have been pushed into like a series of like eight episodes or, or I don't know, something where like fleshed out the whole, you know, the, a lot of times in a story, it's kind of like they're traveling in space. And then magically they're already at their destination or they're like five years later. I'm like, I want to know what happens during that time. Oh, like, okay. Give me some background on sure. this. You know, you're just jumping me to like, they showed up, something happened, explosion, explosion, gore, done. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and I, for, for me, like, I feel I have more, I want a more refined version 
of my movie going thing. And sometimes I I want mindless stuff, but I feel like there's that space where it's just kind of like you said, kind of the the Michael Bay aspect of it. It definitely appeals to people on some level there to continue to go. But I wonder how that is changing with movie theaters and streaming and and stuff like that. I wonder what your opinion is on that. A few things. Uh, Prometheus could have been a lot better. And I think, yes. you know, some of the problems I had with it were like, it just, the scientists were just so dumb. Like they just exactly. made bad decisions over and over again. All and they the just time. didn't seem like real characters <laughs> at all. It certainly didn't seem like our best and brightest to be, be traveling no. to other star systems or planets or whatever the hell they're doing. Like they just seem stupid. And so that was something that I was immediately out. Like as soon as they started behaving that way and touching unknown pathogens and <laughs> yeah, monsters yeah, and stuff, exactly. and you're like, what are you doing, man? Who would do that? So yeah. uh, it's so dumb. So I was like, you try to give the movie a pass for other reasons and then it just didn't pan out. So I'm out of there. Um, I think uh, they're, they're working against their own best interest in, in terms of the actual filmmakers too, because yeah, you're right. There's probably more good information to mine there, more good um, uh, entertainment and they're not doing it because they shot themselves on the, in the foot on the first one. And because I don't know why, like why even create characters like that? I actually don't understand that because Ridley Scott's capable of making good movies, obviously. Yes. And why did those characters exist like they do? I don't know. Um, it's hard to say on that, but but I thought they were insulting, you know, in the same sort of way. And and I'm using that sort of, I'm broadening the term when I'm referring to that in this situation too, because they were insulting to everyone, not just like learned people or people who knew a lot about filmmaking. Anyone was looking at that and be like, those guys are idiots. Why are they doing that? So I don't know, that, that comes across as laziness to me. And I think some, you, you know, a lot of what happens these days too is is the big studios are are just focused on tentpole movies that have a lot of effects and budget and, and all these, you know, beautiful visuals and all those sorts of things. And they don't really care about the story that much because the subterfuge is enough for most people. Um, I, I would equate it in some ways to, um, to trashy foods, you know? So when we mm. eat, when we eat food that we know is not good for us, most people don't necessarily feel better about it after eating it they their body probably physically feels worse for one thing for two they probably have some sense of remorse i'm talking about eating a gallon of or a gallon of ice cream but even that's not even a, a great eating four bags of uh yeah. of uh, potato chips or something an entire bag of potato chips like there's there's almost nothing redeeming about that whatsoever <laughs> no. right no yeah that's poison essentially and i don't think anyone feels better if you do that at, you know, more than once a year or something, yeah. you're in a situation where you feel worse. But going into it, you just wanted something just to like fix that urge or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you already realized that that wasn't going to sustain, sustainably fix anything. And I honestly think that that's, well, a lot of the sort of popcorny movies we have um, are a similar effect. Like people go into them for a certain reason, realize fairly soon that that's not what they wanted, sit through the rest of it, and then keep coming back, sort of chasing that dragon too, because they think they'll get it next time. So I don't know. It's a, not to not to blow it out of proportion too much, but I, I do think they're similar in that it's a sad state of affairs either way. Yeah. No, it's Thank a you. really good analogy. Yeah. No, I 
you know, actually, in a, when I talk to other like health professionals and stuff and fitness folks, we kind of, we have a very similar uh, take on a lot of things, whether it's exercise, food, or you can take that analogy to a lot of things okay. in life. But it's very interesting that you pose it that way because it, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. It actually made me think about um, how, how I want to see movies in a sense. Yeah. Now I see there's this big thing related to showing, you know, big movies on streaming platforms immediately versus yeah. movie theaters. Like I recently, I did watch like Wonder Woman 1984 sure. at my house. And uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's an opinion, right? I mean, I thought it was not good. Honestly, I thought it was. <laughs> I've heard terrible. a lot of people agree with you in that regard. Yeah, I have. It was seen garbage. It. I'm sorry. It was garbage. <laughs> uh, that's just me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry no, no, for no. everybody's feelings. It Let's just, it you know, when like a movie franchise becomes aware of itself, uh, and then it's, that's, it just, that's a you know, tough angle to pull. That's a real big one. You know, I mean, there's a few people like breaking the fourth wall, sort of thing. Matthew Broderick and yeah, in yeah. Uh, in Fast Times, or I'm sorry, in. Um, uh, uh Ferris Bueller. Yeah, yeah, Ferris yeah, Bueller. Yeah. He can pull that sort of stuff off. And I know you're not talking about that specifically, but I'm saying like yeah. the yeah. nod to the audience breaking the fourth wall or just in a uh, Deadpool sort of way. Like, I don't you've seen Deadpool? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think those are really good at that. I think they're really good yeah. at knowing that they're movies and referencing the fact and being like one step ahead of being smart enough to do that. And I yes. don't think most things are capable of that. They're trying to play the idea rather than having it be like a central part of what they're good at. They're just trying to get some cheap proceeds from it, which sucks. Yeah, that yeah. is suck. I just felt it was like very sappy and it was like weak. And I was like, wow, I really like the first one, actually. And this, you know, it's just, you know, whenever you come back to the same thing, but you have to move the story forward. Sure. It always feels like it's that thing where like the sequel's never as good as the first it's such a tough thing. thing to do. It feels yeah. like musicians too, like an artist's first album feels like it's their the hunger is there. And then once they become aware of like gaining notoriety and fame, it's like hard to reproduce that desire. Absolutely. Again, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there's we have some examples of of artists getting better over time and they're like they peak around their fourth or fifth albums. Yeah. It happens, but it's not typical. You know, I, I you know, that, that idea has been done to death, but you know, you need to be fighting something. You need to have, um, what in an, an antagonist to work against, whether that's you or the fact that you're going to fail or the fact that you're, you know, in the back of the van with no food, what, what Metallica used to call, uh, ham and ham and fist sandwich, basically just a piece of ham. Cause you got no bread for the sandwich, <laughs> you know, um, that sort of idea. I, I think you do have to struggle against something really to produce great art in most cases it's a weird thing but um but yeah we haven't really seen that the only other the issue that i have with society right now is like the the prevailing logic used to be something of like when you had certain what do you want to say political parties um in office in the presidential office or during certain times music would be better because mm. they would feel like they were being oppressed or whatever it happened to be anyway without getting too political supposedly that was going to be a big deal with Trump and people are whatever. And I don't think we've gotten any great music. I don't know. I have no, not heard no. it. <laughs> that has not no. had the effect. So I don't think we got the proceeds of either direction there. Um, I thought, I just thought we were going to get some really good songs and I don't, I don't know. I guess I don't follow enough new stuff, but I, I think that's sort of 
failed us in a lot of ways as well. I agree. I agree. I wonder like, because I, I've had several musicians on and stuff and, you know, we've had these conversations about like, why does like music feel like it's so much more depth in things when you're not happy and when mm. there's some kind of like controversy in your life or you're going through tough times, you know, it's like hard to make great music when you're happy for a lot of artists. Then yeah. I wonder for filmmakers, I mean, I don't, I don't have no clue in that sense, but how do you continue to make good films or commercials and things as you gain more experience or gain more notoriety, things like that, you know? I, I don't, I, the running joke I used to tell my parents was that they didn't screw me up enough to make good dramatic movies. <laughs> and so, uh, but I don't, <laughs> the audience could decide that part. I suppose I shouldn't be the one to decide if I'm screwed up or not. But, um, but that was the joke. And more so, maybe it's why I make comedies and I'm not making like deeply rooted, highly Mm-hmm. difficult, distant, you know, uh, depressive or whatever it is situations in my movies. I just don't usually make stuff about that. So I think if I'm in a good mood, I can make decent comedies. If I'm in a bad mood, I'm, it's probably not what I want to be doing anyway. So I personally don't really have to deal with that, but I could understand absolutely why music when you're happy and on the road and everything's great. I mean, I mean, that's why we got all the butt rock that we did in the eighties right? Yeah, exactly. Because there was a ton of dudes that were going around and and except for the actual like ODs, like they were psyched. They had girls everywhere. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of cocaine. Like their writers were ridiculous. Everyone was making money and their hair was big and their music was loud and everyone was happy. So it was like they, and I, and I would wager in my opinion that a lot of that music isn't great. It's catchy and it's it's, um, seminal and all those (laughs) things but i don't know that those are the majority of them are great songs i think that they are just popular songs um yeah so there's that stuff definitely affects it and you're you're a product of your your art is most likely a product of where you at are at in your head at any given time you know if you're real about it and i think if you're real about it then you're going to get better art in general. Yeah. Now, do you ever see yourself moving into like non-comedy aspects of filmmaking? Oh, yeah, sure. In in the movie I made um that's coming out in March called Better. That's a documentary. It's about diabetes, diabetes and obesity. It's about shame and the debilitating effects of it and really what to eat, how to eat, why to eat, those sorts of things. That's what we get into and that's not particularly funny at all that's not a funny topic and we are talking to people that have had their lives severely affected basically since they were born because of how they feel about their bodies and what they weigh and and those sorts of issues so yeah that's not funny and it's not necessarily lighthearted. i mean there's moments but it is serious and i think from the perspective of what we wanted to bring to the table we didn't want to have a sequel you know, we were not setting up in any way, shape or form to make that sequel. And that was a very deliberate, um, deliberate idea and decision from day one is to pack every single, everything that we could get into the movie. We wanted it there. We didn't want to leave anything on the table to put in next time or to be like, Hey, and tune in to find out the rest of the story. Like we didn't want any of that stuff. We would just wanted 100% pure information where we could. And so, I, I think that maybe might speak to a couple of the things we talked about. And yeah, it's it's serious and but it wasn't 
I wasn't the source of any of the depressing things or the sad or the the poignant things or anything. I'm just interviewing these people, you know? So it's, it's, I think it's a different perspective. Tell me a little bit about the making a documentary because I've had a, a few people who do that particular brand of filmmaking. And one of them is now a very close friend of mine. And I love talking to him. Like we chat every couple months about the shows we like. It's so much fun into getting his perspective on how his name's Aaron Weisblatt. He's a great guy in LA yeah. and a very seasoned filmmaker. And just how he sees, you know, these different Netflix specials and series going for that. How do you approach making a documentary? Because it feels like documentaries are hot right now. Like people love watching a good documentary, true crime or something like that. Sure. Know? Yeah. Um, well, I, it depends if you're talking about a series or if you're talking about a one-off movie because those have very different reasons for making them and very different beats and all yeah. that. Um, I think I have a decent idea of how I would go about making like a six-part series on Netflix sort of thing, mm-hmm. especially from a true crime angle. I mean, those are fairly dialed in at this point. I'm assuming that there's some um, fatigue over that format that has been developed ever since say uh, making a murder or something like that. Right. Right. But you know, you're trying to fit them. You're trying to always have the cliffhanger or always have the thing that sort of flips everything on its head at the end of each episode. So when you're making a series like that, that's definitely important. And when you're making a movie, you can't really do that, but you can still keep them guessing. It just has to be way tighter margins and, and, because you need to immediately move on to the next thing. And I would say that those, I don't know, I'm not sure. You, you, You really have to have lightning in a bottle in terms of the story to begin with to really make it work. And a lot of that's just like, looking for a long time or telling you you'll realize too i would say i would say the most important thing that i would say about that is like a majority of the ones that we really like are because they didn't turn out the way that the filmmakers thought they were going to yes totally agree yeah and that's really that's like getting lucky either that or they're sort of fictitious about how it ended up and they realized that if they made it a little more meta or if they changed their perception of it they pretended like they had a perception in at the beginning that wasn't there at the end or whatever it happened to be i don't think most of them are specifically trying to hoodwink the audience in that manner or trying to be fake about it i don't really think so i think they have a point of view that they're infusing into it no matter what they do but yeah providing that's the thing we love about those for sure when you're doing these like when you did better What's the mood of like when you're doing, you're asking the questions, you're interviewing people, you know, you see all these kind of like confessional style interviews when you're watching these things. And often I wonder is what, maybe I'm the only one, I don't, maybe there's other people like, what's that relationship like between the two people? And what's it like when it's not, the camera's not rolling, it's like off air type of thing? Yeah. The people I talked to for this, I was not hanging out with, nor did I know before then. Um, in general, the, a couple out of 25, basically, or however however many you want to say that I interviewed, is somewhere around there for, for various things. And we did confessionals and we did testimonials. And so those actually have a much different feel to them. All the confessionals, we shot black and white. We shot them in a room, just the person and I. And we did 
um, I had I actually had a sheet in front of me, so they couldn't even see me. All they could see was a lens, and that was by design to where they I, we could feel like they could just confess, and I would just give them some questions. And a lot of times, um, I did very little. A lot of it was like this happened more than once. If I if I talked to fifteen people in that room, something like that, then half of the time I would say something to the effect of, "So." Tell me about your weight loss journey. Tell me about what diets have meant mm-hmm. to your life. I would just start with like a sort of a broad question like that. Yeah. Tw- 20 minutes later, I would check back in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's not because they had, they were just talking my ear off. It's not because they um, wanted to to ramble on. It was because they had actual legitimate heartfelt things that they've been trying to express or thinking about most of their adult lives and this was maybe one of the first opportunities for them to expunge and to to just really say all that. And so it was, um, yeah, I, I didn't do a lot. We, you set the situation and you're, what would you say, cordial and reverent. I think reverence is important in those things and having a good sort of bedside manner um, and just say, hey, we're going to have a conversation. Sort of like we started. I mean, that's very important. Yeah. Just be like, hey, yeah, we're going to talk. So. Yeah. So how do, how do you determine what you keep and don't keep? Oh god, it's hard. I mean, it's just so it's so difficult. And a lot of that process is um you do a variety of things. One thing you do is get um transcripts of everything. So you're usually not editing video, you're editing audio. Or I mean, so you're editing text and you have that tied to what the video is. So you're looking at all these transcripts and you're deciding like where do I start with this? You may start pulling out some pieces that you love. So say, for instance, someone says something, you know, we had a guy in there and he was in the Marines and he says something about being in the Marines in something that happened at one moment while he was, you know, deployed or whatever. So what that means is like, okay, that moment was gold. We have to fit that in. So how do you then tell the rest of the story to get to that moment so that that moment works? And then once you realize like, okay, to support that idea, I need three other clips. I need like two to build up to it to where we can get in, we can get the context of that as as quickly and like resolutely and efficiently as possible. Then he does that line that's great. And hopefully the other two things are, you know, interesting as well. And then we need one to like, finish up that story or whatever it is. So then suddenly you're in a world where you have four four pieces of, of, you know, four clips that you need to fit in there. And within those four clips, you're like, okay, I'm at two minutes for the Marine story now. This guy only has a minute and a half to be able to talk. What do I do with this? Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of those things. You're making puzzle pieces. You have a big puzzle that you need to make and you know that can only be a certain amount of time but you also have sub puzzle pieces that are made of other sub puzzle pieces and you have to decide which ones you can keep and which ones you have to jettison so that's i think that's the most important part of that and then just fine-tuning as you go of like okay it's three hours let's try to get it down to two hours let's try to get it down to an hour and a half let's try to get it down to an hour and then add in this other half an hour of stuff that's the other part of the movie whatever it happens to be and that's just a process of elimination. You know, watching it 10 times and being like, I love that one, but I really <laughs> love this one. And just going through. And you start noticing tone and feel and anything that like distracts from the message. You know, sometimes you have something that's like just a brilliant statement, but 
it's not the direction all of the previous 10 clips from the other people are headed. And so you you want to keep it um, just pushing the same, uh, you know, for, for the Apocalypse Now idea. You just want to keep going up the river. Mm-hmm. Like it's keeping up the river and that's important to, to really get people sunk into it. I mean, I love the behind the scenes aspect of that, of like how people choose things. And it makes me also think of, I wonder what you think about this is when you're watching a film or documentary or whatever, I feel like I get this feeling like I know the movies or something is going to be good pretty quickly, Mm. but I don't really know like what that feeling is or why it makes me, pulls me in. Like, what do you think that is? Like when you just know something's good when you're watching it? It's hard to say. I mean, a lot of, a lot of what I would say because I have a lot of preconceptions going in, and and I think most people do, but most people don't understand what those preconceptions are. So I have a nuts and bolts understanding of when the camera is here, this is going to happen. When the lighting is this color, we are going to feel this way. Therefore, the rest of the scene is going to end up that way. When this line of dialogue is said here, I know that they're setting something up for the end of the movie so that this other person can say the opposite, whatever it happens to be, right? Like I, because I know how that's constructed, I have a decent idea of how, why all those things are happening when they're happening. And so I often love a thing when I can see that the filmmaker is doing that, but they're doing it in a way that A, I wouldn't expect, or they're, they're playing with me and doing the opposite of what I would expect. So when I can tell that they've like pulled one over on me a couple times, then that makes me really happy. Or if they say like a dumb joke that I know is a dumb, it's like a, it's a lazy joke, but I realized that that wasn't actually the joke. That was the meta joke to get me into understanding that they understood it was the meta joke and that there's Mm -hmm. a better, deeper, funnier one beneath it. Then I buy into it. And then I'm like, oh, I love these guys. So maybe from your perspective and the fact that you don't understand all the machinations of all that stuff, Maybe you're getting the impression that they're doing something, they're giving you the same thing you already like, but in a different way. And so it feels new, it feels fresh, it feels, you know, a little bit transcendent because of that. And maybe that's what you're keying in on. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, thank you for keying in on that. I just, I've had this discussion so many times with people, I'm like, you know, I, I flipped through all these different things and streaming things, and I'm like, okay, this sucks. This is amazing. This is sure. okay. And I'm like, how do I know when something's like? Because I can know. I can watch for five minutes and be like, oh, I'm I'm invested into this for however many episodes this is. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, versus you watch something, you're like, no, I'm not giving this any time. Like, I'm like, <laughs> what is that? Like, how yeah. do I know that? Is it how it's shot? Is it? you know, the opening sequence, like what, what is that? You know, like I've I've tried to just kind of like nail that down. And sometimes I'm like, I don't know. It's just a feeling, you know? You know, I mean, I think if we're still talking about the corollaries with music, it's like one second into a song, you know, if you like that type of music. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even that you're like, or one second into hearing someone's voice. And that's not a judgment of value. Usually you're not like, oh, that is a bad singing voice, you're more like, yeah, I don't like those types of singers. That just doesn't appeal to me. Why? I don't know. It just doesn't. I don't like it. And so I think that's fairly obvious to most people and not really along the lines of what I was talking about before, which is a a more complicated sort of feeling that you get based on a whole ton of other stuff. It's more like, yeah, I don't like movies like that. And you're like, well, watch this, you know, uh, Hallmark special Christmas movies. And you're like, 
no, I'm not going to. I'm not going <laughs> to like it. That's not what I like. Yeah. And you're like, well, why not? You haven't even tried. And you're like, yeah, but I have. <laughs> like half a time, five years ago. That was plenty. I know. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of so. like period pieces for me. Okay. Anything that's like old school, like period pieces, I just, I can't take it. Like it could be like very into. well acted. It could be like incredibly shot. It's just something about like period piece things. I just, I don't like it. And I was like, give it a shot. And I'll be like, oh, okay. And I'll be like, no, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think in this same sort of way, there's going to be things that you're going to give a pass. You're going to be an apologist for. I don't know what those things are. For me, it's animation. It's like, you know, I'll watch, I'll watch any animation, at least trying to like it, any animated comedy or whatever. And then I'll compare it to what I do like and we'll see how it ends up. But it appeals to me because it has such, as opposed to like regular sitcoms because there's just so much you can do with it. It's, it can be, it has the ability to be far more interesting and, and funny to me. I agree. I love animation and I'll give sci- anything sci-fi a shot okay. or anything in space. I'll give it at least like a shot. Yeah. But then I wonder to myself, how do some of these movies get green lit? They're so bad. Like, you know, <laughs> like seriously, can you, like, how does that happen? I'm like, how did this get on Amazon? Yeah, <laughs> like, you know. totally, totally. It's the poster and the, the you know, one guy that signed on the packaging maybe. So they got one star somehow just because it was a friend of a friend or whatever. Mm. Someone owed someone a, uh, a uh, they, you know, they went to their wedding. So now they need to pay him back to be in this <laughs> thing for three days, whatever it happens to be. Um, so a part of it's packaging, but most of it, honestly, those really bad sci-fi movies or really bad horror movies are because they had a name that they knew they could sell and they had a picture on the cover that they, that they knew that they could sell. And it's like nothing more complicated than that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That's that simple. Because, you know, there's things I watch and I'm like, I don't even know if this is a movie. Like, how can this be like even an, an option on a streaming platform? Yeah, right. And I'm like, you know. Yeah, it's weird. Well, and that's, I mean, you have that opinion about some things and I have that opinion about other like $300 million movies. I'm like, how is this? Right. I, I, I was, and I never even, I don't know that I ever watched it. It's not a, I wasn't ripping on the movie so much as the concept of the movie. Anyway, we'd gone to like an art, sort of an art house movie. I forget what it was. This is many years ago. And um, there was like, I don't know, 15 people in the audience at the mm-hmm. theater. And it was like, you just sort of gauge the people around you, the lights are on and everything. You gauge like sort of who they are and you're like, you might recognize one of them, whatever. I'm like, oh, this is, these people are all here because they intentionally wanted to see this movie by this director we all know. I sort of get what they're into, right? Anyway, the first preview though, we went through a preview and then the second preview was um, Expendables 2. And it was just so over the top and ridiculous and stupid and all these ideas and it was like, it's so heavy handed and all that stuff. And I'm not even shitting on the movie. I don't, you yeah. know, like I, I don't have, I hate the movie. the movie. Honestly, it was terrible. I'm okay, sorry. <laughs> so, so good. Then you make it make sense for me. Anyway, <laughs> the, the trailer ended and not to, not to say my own punchline or whatever, but anyway, I said out loud, which I rarely do in a theater, but I'm like, that's a real movie. And a bunch of people laughed. And like, that was to me, that was that situation of like, how did, why why does that exist why do we want that and yeah. you know obviously it some it has a market at least for one and then it dies because no one watches the third one or whatever it happens to be but 
yeah, you never know. There's someone out there to watch something that you think's awful. Yeah, I mean, I I can definitely. I was actually talking to my dad the other day. I was like, we were we were like, you know, what was your what's the worst movie you've ever seen? We were just laughing. We were like, definitely <laughs> that movie Knock Off by Jean Claude Van Damme. Oh no, or Knock Off or Sneakers. Sorry, it's called Sneakers. When they the filmmaker does some shot of like sneakers exploding, and they're like the cheapest <laughs> looking sneakers. And I remember we turned it off after 20 minutes and we were like, what was that? Like, yeah. How yeah. did that even happen in life? You know, and That's it's just funny, amazing. Man. Like what gets made, what doesn't gets made, what doesn't get made. And yeah, like you're saying, even those big blockbuster movies, you're like, That's it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you why couldn't think you of something better that? than that. Really? Yeah. Why yeah. did you spend all this money on this? And it was so bad, you know, it's, and then that's the weirdest you know, thing. Yeah. And, and some of them too, it's like, you know, you hear those horror stories of like, they were sorting out every bit of the script on set that day, just trying to get something because they mm. had to shoot because of money troubles, because of whatever the situation was like, they were making it up as it happened. And you can tell it totally <laughs> feels like it's just some haphazard crap thrown against the wall. Yeah. And um, yeah, sometimes the reason just as bad as you think it is and why it was crappy is exactly why it worked out that way. Yeah. Mm. Sometimes I always hear about like reshoots and it's like, maybe it's getting some like thing now where it's like, Oh, reshoots mean it was a bad movie or something. What's the deal behind that? I, there's a variety of reasons why you would do reshoots. Obviously, if you're recasting someone, someone dies, there's other issues like that could happen. You know, those are pretty specific reasons. Um, if you are doing reshoots because you think you can make it better and the the director himself or herself is going in there and deciding like, oh, this is this is what I want to do because I need to tell this more efficiently or effectively, this part of the story, then like that's okay. I mean, you're not going to have reshoots for technical reasons anymore. That's going to be exceedingly rare. You know, where whereas back in the day, you would, you like the film didn't turn out or there was some some other reason that you're like, oh, crap, what we thought we did, we didn't do at all. Like that doesn't really exist these days. But I would say if the studio is sponsoring the reshoots and they're doing it because they didn't like what the director did, then you definitely have the op- the opportunity to run into big problems to where the final product will feel like it's two or three different movies. And and that's rarely a good thing. So maybe the director got some of their ideas in, but they were being pushed by the studio to do what they wanted. And then, so they got a lot of half ideas and then they went back and reshot it because the studio ultimately didn't get what they wanted still. And they thought that what the director made was not as good as it should have been, but it was because it was compromised to begin with. And so they go back and put in more compromised stuff by someone who doesn't really understand the source material. And so you just get a muddled mess of crap. That's totally possible. And that's reshoots can absolutely lead to that. Interesting. That's good to know. I, that's, I mean, it was very thorough answer about that. Uh, (laughs) Lastly, um, I'm curious about this. I've asked other filmmakers. This is what is your, um, how do you feel about how things are going with streaming platforms and, you know, the big controversy about um, putting out movies straight to streaming platforms? And is this the future of movie making, less movie theaters? Or what do you think? What do you think is going on there? It's it's hard to say. I couldn't 
I couldn't um, dare to be able to say exactly what is going to happen because of COVID more so than the other things. You know, I mean, the fact that we haven't been able to go to theaters based in California basically for a year. Yeah. I mean, obviously that has a huge effect on everything. And so you would think that that would accelerate all those problems and really exacerbate the fact that not enough people are going to the theaters to begin with. I don't know. I personally prefer going to a theater than watching it at home by quite a large margin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose if they're too expensive for you and you don't like the situation, I mean, that's a little bit of a socioeconomic sort of situation there maybe. Um, but I don't know. I, I hope theaters last forever and I hope I always have the opportunity to go see a movie in the theater. I don't really care when it comes out, if it's day and date, if it shows up on streaming the same day that it does in the theaters that doesn't usually have any effect on someone like me. And I know a lot of other moviegoers that feel exactly the same way. Interesting. And I would say that it's a, I can't tell the future. I don't know, but it's, <laughs> it's hanging. It's rough. It's a, if I owned a theater, I would be not so happy right now. And I yeah. would be looking to get into diversified ways of, of running my business. Absolutely. Well said, Justin. Well, listen, man, I love talking shop with you about this. And I mean, you provided some really excellent answers on a lot of topics. Yeah, I think a lot of topics people actually are really interested in. I mean, there's there's a behind the scenes, behind the curtain of movie making and how things are done. And you just, you know, you provided some solid info on that. And I know for me, I I do this podcast for me, man. Honestly, I want to learn. I'm interested in... That's why I do it, man. I want to be educated on a lot of different topics. And as a, a huge movie uh, consumer, I want to know what's going on behind the scenes. I just do. <laughs> so Absolutely, thank you yeah. for, for you. talking about it, man. You know? Totally. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. That was great, man. I, I really liked how the conversation went and then we got to go into some subjects that I'm a little, uh, a little passionate about that I often don't talk about on these because I've been on a lot nice. of podcasts in the last couple months and um, promoting Brick Madness. And I'm glad I got to say some of that stuff that's a little more, I don't know about edgy is the right word, but at least yeah. very opinionated. There's definitely my opinion. These things don't necessarily mean yeah. that they're true, but I believe them. So, Well, you know, this, see, like you said, you were on a bunch of podcasts talking about Brick Madness. And, you know, I reading through your bio and I knew you were doing that. I like to do the opposite. I want to talk about like the mechanics of what somebody does. Versus always just about, oh, they're doing a promo tour about their thing. Obviously, that's a thing you're doing, but it's interesting to hear from the creator of something, how they create and how they yeah. feel about the things that we consume on a regular totally. basis. You know, totally. It's different. Yeah. And you want to hope that they really care about it. You know, I mean, yes. uh, the the Tarantino line is like, you know, someone asked me what my favorite movie was. And I said, the one I just made. That's why I made it. <laughs> So you want to hope that people are making the things that they, you know, if I believe in anything, I believe in this thing that I just made that was nothing yesterday and now it is a thing. That's really what you hope that artists do at the end of the day. Whether it's good or not, That who can say? But you can at least bank on the fact that they cared about it and that from like the bottom of their soul, like that was important to get out and, and to bring into the world. I mean... If we can't hope for that for art, then I don't even know why we're trying. Most definitely. Well, Justin, thank you again, and we'll certainly be in touch. 
Sweet. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. D's social network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review my dad's show on Apple podcast in the rate and review section. Thanks everyone. Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, radio has been called theater of the mind. So let's tell a story with sound effects. Wow, it's like I was in the story. Almost makes me forget this was supposed to be about saving big with Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.